Pulp MX Network production. Welcome to the Pulp Hockey Show with Ray Ferraro and Steve Mathis. Support the show by clicking the Amazon banner on PulpHockey.com before shopping. Follow the show on Twitter at Pulp Hockey. Subscribe on iTunes and find us on Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Pulp Hockey Podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing on iTunes, uh, uh, anywhere where you get podcasts from, Stitcher as well, uh, or get it from pulphockey.com. Appreciate it. We are here each and every week to talk about uh, the NHL. I'm Steve Mathis, but more importantly, the real star of the show, ex-NHLer, TSN color analyst, an all-around good guy, Ray Ferrara. What's up, Ray? How are you? Uh, I'm great. As we tape this, the Red Sox are up two games to nothing. Oh boy. Two wins away from the World Series. For for you, Steve, because of your Blue Jay fandom, even you must admit, David Price has looked awesome. He, he has. Two starts. And I'm happy for Steve Pierce. I like Steve Pierce. Yep. I'm happy for him. I guess he's a huge Red Sox fan anyways, I just read the other day. Yes. That was, yes, yeah. he is. I will say that the two things that have that I've loved most is, first of all, I love watching Mookie Betts play. Yes, I just think yeah. he's, he's amazing. And the catch that Andrew Benatendi made in left field mm-hmm. when he's leaping up yep. to make that catch, if that's not on everything that he does for the rest of his <laughs> life, he's making a mistake. That yeah. was a, it was just beautiful in the way the photography catches it. It was Amazing. So yeah. halfway home, I've been a Red Sox fan since 1975. And listen, um, if they pull it off, so it'll, if they pull it off, it's your fourth World Series, I think, in 15 yeah, but years. Don't, yeah, but don't forget, from 1975 yeah. to 2004, yeah. there was zero. I know, I know. but I, <laughs> with a yeah. lot of crappy years in there too. Well, I, people should know that I'm doing the podcast today, and I'm wounded. I, I went mountain biking yesterday. And I uh, went too far in a corner, and I got cactus needles, Ray, everywhere in my leg and in my uh-huh. hand. So I have cactus needles. How do you get those things out? You, I had to, I, well, I was pulling some out with my hands, but they were sticking to my hands. So then I had to get a pair. I had to ride the rest of the ride and go to the, grab some pliers out of my truck and use pliers. It, it was yeah, terrible. That sounds, fan- that sounds fantastic. I'm going to the gym. I'll just <laughs> work out in there. Oh, that sucks. Uh, okay, a couple things. Alan Walsh will be on the show, a super agent from Octagon, uh, real outspoken on Twitter. Looking forward to talking to Alan. Yeah, I've known Alan for a few years now. Met him through Gord Miller and uh, always around the World Junior Tournaments is where I've seen him the most, but see him in Los Angeles out there. Real clever guy, really interesting story about how he got into the business. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to that. All right, let's let's uh, let's zoom the show along here. We don't have a ton of time. Um, I guess first up, the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, maybe Chicago, but Colorado right now, uh, 6-2-2. and two. Uh, best goals against in the league, um, proving that last year, obviously they weren't as high in the seed last year, but proving that last year was no fluke, man. Uh, they're doing well. Yeah, they've surprised me. Um, they really have. And um, It's funny you mentioned the goals against because when you think of the avalanche, the first thing you're thinking of this year 
is not just Nathan McKinnon, who's off to a terrific start, but Mikko Rantanen, who's butting into a, mm-hmm. a star player, and Gabriel Landeskog, their captain. It's the best line in the NHL, most productive line at this point. Um, but I don't think most people would think of them keeping the puck out of their net either. And, um, you know, two years ago they had an absolute debacle of a season when Patrick Waugh quit on them just a few days before the start of the season and Jared Bednar came in from the American League. Mm-hmm. He was going to coach their American League team. He kind of had to throw together everything and they got their teeth kicked in. And uh, last year was a, was a surprise. I thought they would take a little bit of a step back this year. Uh, just because whenever yeah. I see a team rise that quickly, I always think there's sure. a little bit of a you know a rebound down. But they've been terrific. They've been exciting. If you haven't watched them, watch them because they're not boring. Um, they're fast. They're aggressive. They give up some chances too. There's lots of things that happen in their games. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting. You know, I thought. Uh, you know, they signed Grubauer from uh, the Capitals, a guy that you, uh, you've you talked highly about before. And I guess the plan is to, you know, Varlam, Varlamov is a uh, free agent. And the plan was Grubauer, I would think, to be number one. But so far, uh, Varlamov has most of the starts. Are you a little surprised at that? I thought it would be 50-50. Uh, I don't know that I'm surprised by okay. it. I, there's no question that um, the abs struck while they had the potential to get a, a really good goalie in Grubauer um, that wasn't going to be available mm-hmm. in the year. So when Varlamov becomes an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year, in all likelihood, they're not going to sign him yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he's already at five and a half million. So I would suspect that the plan was, and they worked this deal out with Washington. They took Brooks or salary mm-hmm. on, they bought or pick out, and, and got Grubauer in the same trade. Um, but now they've got a number one for next year. And in the meantime, if something goes wonky with Varlamov, you've got Grubauer now. Mm-hmm. You've got a really strong goaltending duo, which a lot of teams are probably pretty envious of. And that's why the deal was made uh, yeah. when it was. Yeah, Varlamov, uh, 953, say percentage. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, we'll see what they can do. Keep on going. Uh, 1.56 goals against average for him. Uh, all right, uh, Ray. So, John Tortorella. Uh, man, he, it's good to have torts in the league, isn't it? It's, it's really interesting to have torts in the league. Yeah, torts' opinion is always just sitting there waiting to be, to be exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not shy. He's emotional. Sometimes I think he, he gets so into what he's talking about, he doesn't really have a, a governor or a regulator, and he just runs way down the street. So yesterday, I mean, today is uh, Friday, so on Thursday, he was talking about, you know, there's no more hate in the game. And, mm-hmm. and of course, so some people take it literal that, you know, he's talking about you have to hate everybody. What he's talking about is the games don't have the same bite that they used to have. And I don't know how anybody can debate that. Yeah. Consider, if you will, just if you can take the fighting out of it, but the Battle of Alberta, that used to be a battle. Now it's two teams that, that are situated in cities three hours apart. Like, that's it. There is no Battle of Alberta. It's, it's just not yeah. the same. Yep. And so that's, that's what John's talking about. And then, or at least I think, and that's how I interpret his remarks. And then I'm... I'm reading, you know, like he, he, he had a couple of great lines in there that I thought were awesome. Uh, one of <laughs> yeah. them is, you know, it, does it have to be a hug fest yeah. out there? I, 
and and that's a great line. But again, he's correct. I mean, there's way more discussion amongst the players than there used to be. And yeah. there's so many reasons for it. First of all, the game has changed anyway. It's just it's just changed. It's yeah. just not the, the way it used to be. Uh, number two is the players are more familiar with each other than they've ever been. And that that can go back to um, when they train in the summer. Um, you know, they're all interwoven. There's, you know, there's a big group of players, a couple groups of players that train in Vancouver. There's the same in Montreal. There's the same in Toronto. So in the bigger centers in Canada, for sure, they're, you know, the guys, you work out with guys from other teams. Well, in the past, that never happened. Yeah. You just you just worked out where you worked out, and that was just the way it is. The the other uh, another example would be the you know when they get together the guys in Florida, and they they talk about the Crosby Summit. Yeah. And so it's all the you know all the guys that uh, work with the BioSteel company that you know they're all mm-hmm. top end guys. They get down to Florida and they work together. Well, they're all from different teams, so something happens on the ice and. Yeah. They say hi to each other, and that pisses Torts off, and and I get it because yeah. it's wow. you know he even he even prefaced it by saying hey there's some dinosaurs around yeah and so of course he's talking about people that are a little older that remember things the way they used to be the games are different I think what he's really talking about though aside from all that is he'd like the games to have a attention yeah. to them and there's lots of games that don't. And I don't know how anybody could refute that. Yeah, I don't. I hope nobody thinks he's thinking there should be these 1970s brawl line brawls. That's not what he's talking about. Yeah, but about. Steve, they do. People yeah, start running down. The, you know, like yeah. I'm on radio all over the country, and right. and they start talking about it. And you're like, man, that's not what he was talking no. about. I, I like the uh, the other line that I liked was, I just plead with my guys. Can you just fake it? Can you just please just <laughs> can you just hate somebody? Pretend to hate somebody. <laughs> yeah, and, and then he, he said the other thing he said too was pretty good. He's like. You can go out for a beer after the game, but you have to talk about it during the game. Yeah, exactly right. Oh yeah, no. Um, well, and I, I saw um, uh, a show today on uh, Hockey Central with Brian Burke, and Burke was saying, "Yeah, absolutely." He says back in the day they would wait outside the dressing room to talk to their buddies on other teams. He's like, "It's always happened." You know what I mean? He's saying it's not nothing new. You know, no, but, it's it's not new. And but yeah. what Torts is talking about is the conversations on the ice. Right, right. Are far more old. I mean, Ray, you you played in an era where I mean, you guys went up to Boston, and you hated Boston. You hated the Bruins and the arena and everything else. I mean, Hartford, you know, Hartford days. And yeah, but but if you had a buddy playing on the other team, you always stopped and talked to them after. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like it, I, I don't know. I I think. Uh, you know, guys run, as I said, guys run way down the road on this. Mm-hmm. And that's not, you know, John's not talking about, um, you know, uh, yeah. paces at, at sundown, yep. you know, that yep. you're going to shoot each other. But, right? He's just, he's talking about having a little more bark in the game. He misses it. As a guy that played the game and now is ice level at the game, you 100% agree with him, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm standing, as you know, between the benches. Yeah. And there is, you know, very little said. Way it used to be. Yeah, yeah. It just very, very, it's not even, it's not even close. Actually, every once in a while, somebody says something, and and it kind of strikes me as 
oh, geez, somebody's popped off here because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it doesn't happen it's, very often. It's so odd. Uh, all right, let's get into uh, Alan Walsh uh, from Octagon, one of the top agents in the game, Marc-Andre Fleury, uh, Match Pac- Max Pacioretty, Jonathan Duran, just to name a few. Uh, also, too, Roman Polak. He's he, he's Roman Polak's guy and, and uh, Polak's Did goal you last, see night. His goal <laughs> last night. <laughs> oh, I saw oh it. Just walked in, roofed it, just backhand. Just oh. That goal That goal <laughs> reminded me, I was broadcasting a game in Edmonton, and Matt Green scored his first NHL goal, and it looked just like that. And what's funny about it is he had the same quote that um, Roman Polak had last night after the game, and that's it. He said, I think I blacked out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I saw a goal for Marchment once when Marchment was playing for the Leafs, and he was against Detroit. And he walked in off the line, stick handled around a guy, went around the outside, and put it in the top corner. I'll, I'll never forget. I'm like, where did that come from, Brian Marchman? Yeah, he'll, was... he'll never forget it either. Right, right. All right, let's get into uh, Alan Walsh. And now, uh, happy to announce our guest for this episode of the Paul Pocky Podcast with Ray Ferraro. Love talking about the business of hockey, and there's perhaps no one better to do that with than the co-managing director of Octagon Hockey, Alan Walsh. Alan, thank you for your time for the Ray Ferraro Podcast. My pleasure, Steve and Ray. Pleasure to be here. So, Alan, you're um, you've, you've built quite a quite a persona around yourself, and I don't think people have quite any idea what most of us do or what most people do outside of what they read about on Twitter. But how did you get started um, somewhere to become an, a sports agent? Because you had a long career elsewhere first. Right. I was, uh, I'm an attorney. I went to law school in, uh, in California. And uh, after becoming a uh, member of the uh, bar, passing the California bar exam, uh, I joined the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, uh, the largest prosecutorial agency in the world, and became a deputy district attorney. Uh, I was assigned to the Central Criminal Courts Building downtown L.A., working in a felony trial unit, uh, did that for about seven or eight months, and then applied and was accepted into a elite division inside the DA's office called the Hardcore Gang Division, where for uh, the majority of my time as a prosecutor, I did nothing but prosecute gang murder cases. Uh, I tried approximately 40 murder cases uh, as a prosecutor in the gang unit, um, Bloods versus Crips, Crips versus Crips, uh, Latino gangs, MS-13, 18th Street, uh, Mexican Mafia, prison gangs, uh, Aryan Nations, uh, uh, and and did that until I was approximately 29 years of age. Uh, Around that time, uh, after uh, 40 murder cases, uh, a judge had one time said to me that I had a lot of respect for, uh, kids, slow down, because you only have so many murder cases in you. And I think when I got to around the 40 mark, I had uh, gotten to the point where I needed a change. I was surrounded for many years uh, by tragedy and 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 blood and and murder uh and felt that uh i needed to move away from that uh if you if was you it, try a murder scary, case Alan? the right was way it scary? was it scary Pardon me? 
Was it scary um, to try these it, cases? I, I, it wasn't so much scary um, as as it was just um, you, you really do lose faith in in humanity. And by trying murder cases back to back, if you're doing them the right way, you give a little piece of your soul to each case. Um, and, and I poured my heart and my soul into every case and got very close to some of the victims of 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 these murders and their families um and uh you 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 realize um you know you go back to your your home and 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 your family and, and there really is another world out there um you know at the time between 1990 and 1995 um LA was being overrun by gangs uh, there were, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of gang murders occurring uh, every year. Uh, it was a, it was a, the gang violence was a huge scourge on our community. And uh, it was something that I, I felt very passionate about. Um, but so, so to get back to your question, uh, around 1995, after doing the, prosec- the prosecuting gig for about five years, um, being from Montreal and being very close to my dad and being raised by my dad as a single parent, I went back to Montreal in between murder cases and, and was spending some time with him and talking about you know m- my future, what I wanted to do, and... I wanted to start working in hockey, which was my original passion uh, and and the original reason why I even went to law school was to somehow work in the hockey business until I got you know sidetracked. I took a wrong turn at Albuquerque, so to speak. <laughs> and um, uh, my dad had introduced me to a couple of people that he knew. One of them was a very well-known hockey journalist in Montreal. And through just meeting different people, I ended up in the office of an incredible gentleman by the name of David Chadia. And David in the 1970s was one of the biggest agents in the world. He represented um, between the NHL and WHA, 140 players at one time. He represented Fergie Jenkins, who's a Major League Baseball Cy Young award winner. Uh, He had a bunch of uh, clients uh, in the CFL who went on to play in the NFL. And around 1980, completely got out of the sports business and was one of Montreal's prominent lawyers. Um, David and I met, and and the purpose of the meeting was he was going to give me 30 minutes um, of his best advice on how to start from scratch in the sports agency business and build a, a hockey practice. And uh, the 30 minutes turned into four hours. And at the end of the four hours, we shook hands uh, and and became partners. And uh, we started our agency completely from scratch in 1995-96. Worked together for many years. David was a lot older than I was. um, And and we worked together probably uh, 15 years building our business together until we were acquired by by Octagon, where I am now, 
and and David, you know, transitioned into retirement. Now, when when you got into the agency business in in the mid nineties, um, so that's coming out of the first lockout. Um, the the business is changing rapidly. Where was it then to what it is now? Well, you're right. I was actually preparing to to get into the agent business as the NHL was going through its first lockout, uh, which didn't seem like great timing uh, on anybody's part. Uh, but you know, That wouldn't be the first time, Alan. Alan, that wouldn't be the first time, the bad time of the NHL. So. Well, that's 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 because you know me. Uh, but uh, we uh, we we came out of the uh, first lockout. Um, I, I people forget that over time, the fact that there was no salary cap uh, in the quote unquote new CBA of 1995, uh, it, it it was perceived over time as a win for the players. At the time the CBA was uh, consummated, it was perceived almost universally by the media and by everyone else in the business as a huge win for the league. Uh, and it didn't; it did, the perception didn't change uh, until you saw the rapid rise in um, in, in salaries. And you know, I, I saw a quote from someone involved in the negotiations back then as saying, "We we lost." We lost the war, referring to the actual CBA negotiation and consummating the CBA, but we won the peace. And and I think that was very telling uh, on on you know how the NHLPA was at the forefront of um, every arbitration case, uh, pushing almost every negotiation back then, uh, and using. You know certain players uh, in in key markets as um, uh, an ability for other players to to piggyback on those deals and and move forward. And, and I think back then um, the ability to negotiate deletion clauses and performance bonuses and uh, a lot you had a lot of ability back then to be creative in the way you put contracts together and all of that creativity and the ability to use different tools to bridge, you know, agreements with, with clubs got completely wiped out in the 2004, 2005 lockout where they banned all of these clauses except for very limited circumstances, uh, which, which I think really hurt both sides. But Gary, so was, was it harder now? So is it much harder on just sorry, Alan. What, was it sorry, Alan? Was it harder now? Is it harder now, or just different because you have less variables to almost every deal? Right. It, it's become more cookie cutter. You're really focused on 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 one number, and that's the salary. And with really good players, elite players in every position, you know, maybe salary and signing bonus and how to divide the two up year to year to year to year. But to be able to, you know, use deletion clauses and revision clauses 
you know, if a player hit a certain performance threshold and received a bonus in year one of his contract, his salary was revised upwards by a specific amount for the remaining years of the contract. Uh, there was a lot of incentives in many player contracts back then, as you probably well remember. Um, and, and that um, allowed younger players who, who hit high performance thresholds to get paid, um, yet at the same time gave teams some downside protection in case those young players didn't play at a at a high level but what we've seen over the course of the last two cbas is a transfer of the bulk of player salaries from 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 veteran guys defined as 30 years plus to the younger guys and 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 a squeezing of the middle class to the point where the the trend we're seeing is you're going to have the highly compensated guys and guys making at or near the minimum and that whole middle class of guys in the two two and a half three million dollar range are being completely squeezed right out of the out of the league um based on based on those trends so in your how many contracts would you say if you could just estimate how many have you done Big and small. Have you done a thousand, couple thousand, over your time? Uh, I, I, well, so it's a while I, I've guess, been in the bi- I've been in the business since '95. I've negotiated over. There, there was a project we had internally where I had to calculate this about a year ago, and at that time I was at about a billion two in contract value. Over the course of my career, I'm probably close to a billion five now. Um, the actual number of individual negotiations, I would be guessing, but I would probably say uh, several hundred. I don't think it's quite at a thousand, but I would say several hundred. What's the craziest story you can tell us about trying to get a deal done? <laughs> <laughs> you can leave the names out if you have to. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's got to be, I'm sure in, I know with just a couple of, you know, some of the deals that I did, we'd get down to the end and you're like arguing arguing over whether the coin was heads up or heads down. And, you know, everybody's fighting for their last little piece of the pie. You're right in. So you must, there, there must be some that you'd still to this day shake your head over. I, I, had, a, I had a player... Uh, come to me who was a top, top player in in the American League who was coming out of entry level and had not yet played in the NHL. And I'm going back many years, and he was a guy with a lot of upside, but he also was an enforcer too, and he could really throw. He could really throw him. And uh, he, he became a free agent, um, and and the, the New York Rangers had a lot of interest in him back then, and I wanted a one-way contract. And the GM back then at the time said, I'm not giving you a one-way contract. And I said, I want a one-way contract because I'm not giving you a one-way contract. We like the guy. 
I'll sign him. I'll give him a two-way deal. He'll have every opportunity to come in and make the team, but I'm not giving him, I'm not giving him a one-way deal. And uh, I called the GM one morning, and I said, I tell you what, the player is going to get on a plane. He's going to pay for his own flight. He's coming to see you, and he's going to convince you to give him a one-way contract. And, and the GM's like, he's going to come here? Really? Well, I'll send a car to pick him up at the airport. And I booked the player flight, and I said, I want you to put on the tightest T-shirt you can find. And he was ripped, and he had tattoos everywhere. And he's like, yeah, I got it. I said, I want you to go in there. And I want you to act all crazy. I want you to tell. I want you to be pounding the table. I want you to tell the GM that you're going to do anything. You'll 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 skate through walls. You'll do whatever it takes. But you you deserve that one way, and he'll never be sorry. But you're pounding the table. You're gonna. And I want you acting psycho. I want your eyes rolling back in the back of your head. I want you going nuts. So he gets in the car at the airport. He comes in to MSG, sits down with the GM alone, and they start talking, and he goes totally psycho. And, I mean, he I heard he was pounding the table. He flipped over a chair. He was going nuts. <laughs> GM stood up and said, you've got a one-way contract, son. Shook his hand, and the GM called me and said, he's got his one way. He's got his one way. You know, like, holy moly, I had no idea. He's got his one way. Um, The the wind-up was the player in the summer, after he signed his one-way deal, uh, started taking boxing classes from this guy in Montreal and tore all the tendons in his thumb. And he didn't tell me, and he didn't tell anybody. But he comes into camp. And uh, during camp, um, he has a uh, he has a fight with uh, another enforcer with the Rangers, and he just got clocked. And then he goes into a preseason game, and he's playing against the Boston Bruins, and he's fighting against one of the top enforcers in the league, and he gets killed. And then he's in the camp, another uh, practice, and. Uh, you know, a couple of guys challenge him to a fight, and he says no. And the GM calls me, and he says, "We have a problem." <laughs> he says, "We have a five foot nine Finnish player chasing your guy all over the ice, challenging him to a fight, and your guy skating away." <laughs> so it didn't didn't end well. <laughs> oh, that is that is outstanding. Now, one of your uh, one of your uh, most publicized um, contracts this past past summer, well, it turned into a contract, but was Max Pacioretty leaving the Canadians. He'd been there for years. He had a pretty exemplary record. He is real, really connected to the community, and it just fell apart. When you're trying to massage both the public image and what's going on behind the door, how how do you how do you make that all happen? Because in, in a market like Montreal, it seems like it comes from all sides and you have to try and get your story out at some point. Is that correct? Uh, I, I, it is correct. And, and I think that, uh, uh, well, I want to be very uh, careful and, and use my words judiciously here. 
I think that um, in the last year, there really was no one advocating for Max and his mm-hmm. side uh, publicly at all in any way. So when things go well in Montreal, there is no better place to play in the entire league than in Montreal. And when things don't go well in Montreal, it can be at times a very miserable place to play. And there's a lot of finger pointing and there's a lot of, you know, the, 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 the uh, everybody's well-intentioned. No one here is looking to hurt anybody else, in my opinion. I always think that people always have the best of intentions. But let's face it, when things are not going well in Montreal, from the media to the fans, and everyone's entitled to their opinion and everyone's entitled to express their opinion, Montreal can be a very tough place. And at times, you know, somebody needs to stand up and say, oh, hold on a second here. It's getting a little bit out of hand. And, and you know, do you think the players aren't trying? Do you think the, the plan is they're going to show up to the rink every day and, and it's like, hey, guys, let's get together here and let's go out and lose a game and lose bad? You know, and there's a right. number of reasons why uh, teams could get into a funk. Things start spiraling out of control. Uh, but overall, there was nobody really advocating for Max last year. And and there was lots of people, um, you know, using him and some other players as scapegoats for the team's lack of success. And I, and I think when, when Max and I started working together, uh, one of the things he was looking for was for somebody to advocate for him, not just publicly. Um, you know, I wasn't out there every day saying stuff, but I did say a few things. But I think also advocating internally as well. Um, and, and I think it's something that he, he wanted he identified it as something that he wanted. He sought it out, and uh, and and then things started happening. And so now he gets moved to Vegas, and um, you know, it's a completely different world from Montreal to Vegas. How how has he found that? And the reason I'm interested is because I know my first place that I changed after seven years, I was completely lost right away. I, it just felt it felt like an upside down world and like the team they've, they've you know he's had kind of a little baby step into the season and is he comfortable does he like it is he i mean he signed a four year deal but is it what he thought it would be early on well he he's very happy in vegas he loves it there it's a it's a great place to live um he loves the coach who was his assistant coach for uh, about four years in Montreal. So there's a prior Mm. history and a relationship there of uh, mutual respect. And uh, uh, he, he knows several of the players on the team. He's trained with flower in Montreal uh, for several years. Uh, I, I think from a hockey standpoint, having, his, you know, quote unquote, his centerman, the the player he was uh, circled to play with, Paul Stasny, go down with an injury. 
that's going to have him out somewhat long term um, is a is a bit of a blow. And and then he had another one of his uh, line mates also go down with an injury, who just came back into the lineup, made the um, I think the hockey transition challenging to begin with. But the way he's been received in Vegas, the um, the excitement of the fans, uh, the the way the organization has welcomed him, uh, the way his teammates have welcomed him. I mean, uh, every day that I spoke to him, he he was. I I just can't believe how things are here. It's beyond any of his original expectations. So in that sense, you you know, they, they, you know, the the day he got to Vegas, he was on a helicopter tour, the strip at his name um, in lights at every uh, casino uh, on their, um, on their billboards. Um, there's a huge Welcome to Vegas Max billboard right outside of the Vegas airport. Um, you know, the just meeting people in the community, you know, Max, you're so happy you're here. Um, you know, it's so great to have you here. He, he really felt from day one uh, wanted and welcomed and and both you know him and his family and his family has recently moved down there full time uh still settling in kids are in school there now there've been a lot of you know logistical things and just getting him settled but he couldn't be happier in that respect uh it's, it's such a turnover and a transition for everybody when you get traded and everybody we see the games and you forget there's so much more to it alan i got one more for you um as somebody who engages in Twitter a little bit, as I do. <laughs> so do you. And actually, the, this is really where Alan and I first met, was uh, Alan's friendly with Gordon Miller, who is, if you listen, you know that Gordon and I do lots of games together. And so I was giving it to Gord about his buddy Alan, about, holy smokes, man, could he, why does he defend his players so much, like in public? And And so we got into this little bit of back and forth, and Turned out I'm, we met each other at the World Juniors, and I said to Gord after we left, well, he's not totally crazy. Like, this is, I think we can get along. And Gord said, I think he thinks the same thing. You're not totally crazy, so this could be fine. So where did you get involved in the Twitter stuff, Alan? Because I'm entertained by it, but you also seem to be one of the, one of the only agents that really seems to be out there defending and promoting his clients where most seem to to not do that um at octagon uh there's a there's a digital division uh led by some very brilliant people at the forefront of the uh so-called social media tech revolution and uh, there was an email that went around to a bunch of agents in the Octagon offices about a uh, representative from a new company called Twitter uh, that was uh, coming in to make a presentation. And uh, I was intrigued, and I, I like going to these um, initial get-togethers and, and, and learning you know, like I, I wake up every day and, and I say to myself, like, I want to learn something new today. And uh, I would go to a lot of these meetings, and I still do, that have nothing to do with hockey, just to learn something new. 
and it was a uh, top executive at Twitter. Um, they were literally just a startup. They were just getting off the ground, and uh, they spoke about uh, their vision. There really was no social media at the time. It didn't exist. So this is probably back in 2007, 2008. And um, there, there was, a, you know, there was no talk about an app on your phone. I think uh, everyone was still using Blackberries at the time, and and saw their their phone as a uh, a phone and a email uh, device, not even really text message. Uh, and, and some people had flip phones that they could text with by pressing a letter uh, or a, a, a button on your phone three times to get the third letter in the chain. And, <laughs> yeah. and it really wasn't seen as a way to communicate. Um, but they, they talked about where this could go down the road if it takes off. And I was intrigued. Uh, and I went to Twitter.com. I created an account. And I started, and, and you, you could only use it on a computer. There was no, there was no app, uh, and and watched it grow. And as it started growing and taking hold uh, within society, um, I started tweeting and I started talking to a few players that I thought would be perfect for Twitter. One of them was Marty Havlat who was one of the first NHL players to be active on Twitter. Um, and he was in Chicago at the time and he took to it and he was tweeting, uh, you know, about his day, about his interactions, about, you know, how he prepares for a game. Um, and it was, some of that stuff was pretty compelling, uh, back then. And, and Marty, Marty kind of stopped, when when reporters only wanted to talk to him about Twitter and why he got involved in it, <laughs> what he's doing, he's like, "All right, I've, I've had 15 interviews about Twitter. I think I'm slowing down." You know, it's like it's great if they don't ask me about it. Um, but I, I saw Twitter as a way to express myself uh, within the business, and and it's. it's pretty well known that I support player causes. Um, I'll support my players. I'll advocate for them publicly at times. It's, it's um, many people don't like it. Many th- people think agents should just shut up and do whatever they do behind the scenes and, and not be heard from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think a different way. I respect that opinion. I know it's, it's the way it's always been. Uh, but I, I think that uh, there are many players in the course of their career that will never need, not even one time, for an agent to speak up for them in the midst of a situation. And there's a whole group of other players that might have one time in their career where they're in crisis or one time in their career where they need someone to light a match or create a spark or to do something, something, anything. And uh, at times, it's made the difference between the player continuing his career and having a career 
and maybe not having a career. So you don't want to be reckless. You don't want to do things that are going to hurt a situation. Um, and, and you, you know, your, your intentions are always well-meaning. But people have to understand, I don't represent a club. I don't represent a GM. I don't represent a coach. I represent the player. And the only person I answer to and the only person I care about is my client. No one else. And I don't have to apologize for that. I'm doing my job. And if people don't like it, that's okay. If people want to criticize it, that's okay. I'm not in a popularity contest. I have thick skin. The only person I answer to is the player. Did that come from the prosecution office? Um, it probably, uh, it probably, in some, I think part of it is just my personality. Uh, but I think that uh, a big part of that outlook was framed and shaped um, from my years as a prosecutor. 100%. Ray, you uh, you would have liked to have Alan on Twitter in uh, 95. Uh, the Rangers wooed you as a free agent, UFA. They signed you and then traded you 65 games into your deal. <laughs> I needed Alan then to say, wait a minute, he didn't get shorter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they, they, Alan, they said uh, one of the reasons they traded Ray was they wanted someone a little bigger. He always says on this show that he was the same height in the summer when they wanted him. <laughs> so, oh well it is what it is eh? it is what it is a couple more for me alan before we let you go uh one is uh, a gm past or present that uh you've had the most battles with or is the toughest guy uh, to negotiate a contract with or or someone that you 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 know just there's just two personalities that just see things differently uh can you give us a name or two that you've you've had uh, these things with uh, I've, I've always, I've always enjoyed, uh, working with Lou Lamorello and, and that might surprise, uh, a mm -hmm. lot of people. Uh, but, uh, I, I represented a lot of players back in the New Jersey day. Um, Patrick Eliash, um, Mike Rupp, Merrick Shedlitsky, Peter Sikora, mm -hmm. um, and Marty Havlat was there briefly. And I always, I always find conversations with Lou to be fascinating. Negotiations are fascinating. Um, uh, I, I've had the pleasure of sitting down with Lou and having lunch and spending, you know, several hours talking about things beyond hockey. And I find him to be an incredibly fascinating individual um, who is passionate about what he believes in and sincere in what he believes in. Um, and, and one would expect that someone like Lou and I would be, um, oil and water. Yeah. Yeah. But we actually, we actually find a way of always making deals together and, and, and getting along. Hmm. Um, another GM that I've always had a, a, a lot of respect for and did a lot of deals with over the years, Ray Shiro in New Jersey. Um, there really isn't anybody in the GM world that um, 
that you you don't like or it gets personal mm-hmm. and you know the the idea of uh agent and the gm yelling and screaming at each other and pounding the table and 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 calling each other names it it's it's great for the movies <laughs> but it doesn't really work like that in real life. Right, right. Uh, a couple more. Uh, the CBA. Uh, you, obviously, everyone who follows you on Twitter knows that this is something that uh, you, you're you involved in and you're passionate about as it affects all your clients. This September, uh, either side has an option to uh, opt out of this. It expires at the end of next year. I don't possibly understand how there could be a lockout or, or, or anything because it seems like the revenues are what they are. They've already split. There's the Olympics and there's a World Cup issue and there's some small things and length of contracts apparently is a rumor that the NHL wants to, to shorten them even more. But, Alan, they can't possibly have another lockout, can they? Well, Gary Bettman is three for three with lockouts. Yes, yes, he is. Three CBA negotiations, three lockouts. And every lockout has resulted in the transfer of hundreds of millions to billions in player salary, player share to the owners. So given that history, what would stop Gary Bettman and the owners from doing it again? I don't know. Ray, can you help us here? No, I can't, and I and I, I wish there was something more um, hopeful. I mean, it, it, if yeah. you remember the last time or the time before, things are kind of moving along, and then as you get closer, you go, oh, they'll figure something out. And even when I was playing, that's what we thought. Oh, they'll figure something out. And then you get to a point, you're like, there is no time. They're not going to figure this out because they don't want to figure it out. And I, I, I would say that attacking something earlier instead of just thinking it's going to work its way out would be the way to go. But both sides have to be willing to, to make the deal. Well, that's, that's the key Ray, what you just said right there. And, and I get this a lot from, from players when I talk to them, why don't, why don't we just start negotiating earlier? Why don't we just, you know, get everybody in the room and, 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 and just work out a deal. And and it's a it's it's sincere when when players say that, but let's face it, players don't have uh, a long history of being personally involved in CBA negotiations, and at least as far back as 2004, the NHL was intent on shutting the league down, and from the from the very beginning. It was planned on the league side that they were going to burn a year unless the players agreed to a hard cap before the year was completely burned. So in that, in that atmosphere uh, of, of league strategy with Bob Bannerman and, 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 and the league coming in, how do you go into a room with these gentlemen and say, we're here to negotiate in good faith? When the other side is here to burn the year unless you agree to a hard cap. And then we come up to 2012. You know, let's negotiate. Let's talk. Let's try to work through our differences. The league was intent 
on bringing their share of HRR from 57 to at least 50. You know, they started at, at putting the players at 44 when the negotiation started, you know, and, and it, it, it was, that's, they, they decide where they want to be, what's the end point of where they want to be in the negotiation. And then the strategy is lock the players out until they're softened up, until they're ready to make that deal, and then we make that deal in January. That's yeah. the strategy. Yeah. That's the strategy. Because the league has learned all the hue and cry. You're damaging your business. The fans aren't going to come back. You're never, you don't know what, what carnage you're doing to the industry. The fact is the fans come back right away. All those fans who tweet, I'm never buying a hockey ticket again because of this lockout. I'm, I'm, I'm done with hockey. I'm never going to a game. I'm never watching a game on TV again. They all come back. And the league has two circumstances from 2004-05 and 2012. The moment they turn the switch back on, the fans come back. So there's no risk on the owner's side from locking the players out because they're not doing irreparable damage to their business. It's not taking them five years or eight years to recover. They're jacking up ticket prices the moment we come back, and and they're making money right away. So there is nothing out there that prevents the owners from from doing it and doing it again. Well, yeah, I mean, you make perfect sense, unfortunately. Uh, absolutely. Well, Alan, thank you for uh, coming on. I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't wrap up. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, how many concerts have you seen? How many? Uh, I, I lost I, probably around 140 uh, around the world. Uh, first show I saw was 1978 on the Darkness Tour. And uh, and I've seen him in uh, London, in Germany, in Sweden, um, all over the U.S. and Canada, uh, and probably at about 140 shows plus right now. Jeez, right. Is there is there one that's is it possible that one has been better than the rest? There's there, there's different shows that have different meaning to me. There's two shows that stand out in particular. The last time I saw Bruce was uh, in August in New York at Springsteen on Broadway, and I was sitting um, uh, front row center, and, uh, and, and I felt like Bruce was playing to, to me and my son, my 15-year-old son, all night. And uh, as soon as the uh, show was over, the, the, the last song he played, he uh, came over to us and shook our hand, and he went back to his microphone stand and he grabbed one of his picks and he came over to my son and he gave my son his pick. And, uh, and, and we had a couple of words with each other as he was walking uh, off the stage. That was a special moment for me, but uh, probably the, the E street band show that stands out for me more than any other was in uh, Buffalo, New York at the end of the, uh, Working on a Dream Tour, it was the last concert Clarence Clemens played with the band before he passed away. It was the last show of the tour. 
people flew in from all over the world to come to Buffalo to see that show. And uh, it was it was a, it was an incredible incredible show. And in that show it was the first time he had played. He started on that tour playing full albums from start to finish of of his. He played Greetings from Asbury Park, um, his debut album from 1972. Played it from first song to the last song in in chronological order. And and that was uh, that was really special. Amazing! I I can't think of anything. Too many things I've done 140 times. So that's uh, <laughs> that's, that's an amazing amazing string of concerts that you've seen. That's that's awesome, Alan. I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been really fascinating. I learned something about you, and I'm going to see you somewhere down the road. But we'll see you at the World Juniors for sure here in Vancouver. You got it. Pleasure being with you guys. Thanks, Alan. All right, man. Well, Ray, uh, interesting interview. Very interesting guy. And I hate that fact that he made so much sense with that CBA stuff. I mean, why wouldn't they do it? I I don't know. The revenues are 50-50, but still, I I, I have no hope. I'm a pessimist. Well, the... The reason it, you know, he laid it out pretty clearly. If the agenda from the owners and the mm-hmm. league is to, to make the fifty-fifty share forty-eight fifty-two, then you've got a problem. Yeah, yeah. How, how because could, yeah. players I talk to, Steve, they they often talk about they want it to go back the other way. Well, that's not going to happen. But if the owners decide they want to push the button here and and try and chisel out a couple more percent, which mm-hmm. they can. I mean, it's yeah. their league. They can they can try to do it. It, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like the players would be very receptive to that. No, I just I oh, uh, it'll be it'll be too much for me. Uh, Tom Wilson suspension upheld by Gary Bettman, and there's now a chance for Wilson to go to a neutral arbitrator to to if he wants to keep going on this thing. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's worth going any further. And the reason I don't is I think the Caps are coming up to their tenth game. He's only got 10 more to go. Yeah. Um, if they decide to appeal it to an independent arbitrator, that'll take two weeks. That's another five games. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. what's the point? Yep, yep. You know, that that would be mine. I mean, you just look at this point, chew on what you've been given, uh, mm-hmm. come back a little bit different, and um, and don't get suspended again. <laughs> there we go, right? Uh, all right, let's uh, – you want to talk about Connor McDavid's ice time quickly? What do you, what do you make of it? Sure. 20, 24.09. What – what I make of it is I could never have played that much. And it, <laughs> right. it's astounding um, that he can play that much. But there's a couple of things. Um, one, of course, is he's better than mostly everybody else yes, in the world. that, right? So, so that helps. Uh, number two is that he's uh, – and I don't know that great players really get credit for this. Uh, Gretzky did, but a lot of them they don't. And that's their – their ability to understand and to see the game. So McDavid's not skating around 100 miles an hour all the time. In a lot of cases, he's like a predator. He's, he kind of lurks in the weeds. He, he rarely stops. You rarely see him stopping and starting. But he's reading the play as he's moving around. And then eventually, there's a little bit of an opening, and bam, he's gone. Well, the fact that he's always moving and not stopping allows you to play a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he's on for a minute and 45 of every power play. They're yeah. using him killing penalties. So there's there's no spot that he can't play. Now, I don't think he's going to be able to play 27 minutes a game for the rest of the season. Yeah. Once once the travel catches up and 
the games start to, to get a little tighter, I, you know, where you're going to be forced to stop and start, mm-hmm. um, I think the minutes will go down. But it's a uh, it's been a, a pretty astounding start. He's for him. Uh, he's averaging two minutes uh, more than the next forward, which is Kopitar, and uh, yeah, so we'll see see what happens here. Um, all right, let's uh, let's go into Ray Ferraro game of the day. I don't have a lot for October 26th in your career. Uh, I have a, I have something really good for November 26th. If you want to wait and record, right? Make sure we record on that day because that'll be terrific. Well, that, yeah, I think we could probably give that a go. I can't tell you what I'm doing tomorrow. Right, so but but let me tell you, a month from now it's a stretch. November 26th game of the day is special. But uh, where where is it? Uh, well, I can't. T- I won't reveal it. Uh, we'll just try okay. it. Uh, October 26th, 88. You remember the Whalers? You guys bomb out the Sabres seven to one. You have uh, no points, no assists, uh, four shots on net. But at uh, at ten forty three of the second period, uh, Adam Creighton, Mike Hartman on the Sabres, Dean Everson, Brent Peterson of the Whalers are all fighting and high sticking. A scrum breaks out, and you get a game misconduct. Ten minute game misconduct. I don't even know why. I would, why would I have been on the ice? If you think of it, right? Yeah. Brent Peterson and Dean Evison are centers. Yep. What the hell was I doing? I don't know, but hey, Adam, I don't remember that. Okay. I think I probably blacked that out because I didn't have any points in a seven-one win. Yeah, maybe. Ten forty-three of the second to, period. Uh, to to get going, right? And get kicked out rather is. Um. Peterson, I, I, mean, I can't even imagine what I would have been doing. Peterson also got a game misconduct. Creighton and Hartman just got. Uh, oh wait, Hartman got a game misconduct also. So three game misconducts. Fighting for Creighton and Hartman, fighting for Everson, fighting for Peterson, and just you game misconduct. <laughs> so I, I can't I, even imagine what what was I doing. I don't because know. I can't. I can't picture a scenario where all three of us would have been on the ice. Right. Well, I'm guessing too that Creighton and and and. And who's a big man, by the way? Uh, yes, he is. You know, measured up against Peterson and Everson and Hart- Mike Hartman, gritty guys. You know, got together, yeah. and then I, I don't know where you came in with just a game misconduct. <laughs> uh, I was probably mouthing off to somebody, and the ref had enough of it and just said, "Why don't you beat it too?" Right. Okay. So uh, that's all we had for October. Now, was 26th. that game was that game in Hartford or in Buffalo? in Buffalo? Yeah. So see, maybe my strategy was because the the dressing rooms were so shitty in that place, was to get into the dressing room fast so there was some hot water. Right, okay, yeah, maybe maybe that was it. Uh, That place was a dump. Uh, I hated that place. Creighton fought again in the third with Latticeur. It was a rough game. Like, it was, yeah, Grant Jennings got a misconduct earlier. Robinson got an instigator. Like, this was a brawl. Yeah, they're... um, in the day when the games spread out, mm-hmm. that's when they got. You really had to keep your head up. <laughs> it wasn't a good thing when it was a blowout. Like no, I always hoped it was like four one was okay, but if yeah. it got to five one, yeah. looked out. Like last night, Crosby and Phil and all those nine one win. They needed to look out in the old days. It yeah, and just... today you just finish the game. <laughs> right, right. And but you know what? It's probably better. Uh, all right, here's some questions uh, from our listeners for you. Uh, from D. Machetto, who was a player that you played with uh, in junior or minors that surprised you didn't make it as an NHL pro? Oh, boy. Um, Cam Plant um, was a guy I played with in Brandon. Mm-hmm. Um, his son actually was a first-round draft choice, Alex, uh, by the Edmonton Oilers. He played for Korea in the Olympics last year. 
Mm. He's been overplaying there for a few years. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, my last year in junior, when I had 108 goals, mm-hmm. uh, Cam had 118 assists. Um, he ran our power play. He could really pass. Yep. And I always thought he was going to be be able to play, and and it just it just never happened for him. Did he get drafted? Uh, yes, by yeah. Toronto. I want to say in the seventh round. Oh, okay, so later. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right, Dale Hunter's helmet. Was there an extravagant purchase or two Ray made during his playing days? He wishes he had instead invested in Apple stock. Or did you buy a Ferrari uh, almost, or anything? <laughs> I was going to say, almost if I invest in Apple stock in the mid-'80s, almost anything yeah, I yeah. bought. Right, right. Um, but did you make a I, ridiculous I purchase? I probably bought – no, I I didn't. But we didn't make any money to yeah, start yeah. away. But I probably – I probably bought too many cars because I didn't really know what I liked. And so, you know, not that I, you know, I bought a Mercedes right. and I had a BMW and yeah, yeah, classy cars. Well, yeah, but I didn't like them. And so <laughs> I never bought new ones. And so that limited the damage, but yeah. it really wasn't very bright. Right. Right. Uh, Sean wants to know, will Coach Q finish the season behind the bench in Chicago? Well, they're off to a good start. Well, if they go like they are now, he will. Um, really interesting dynamic there between uh, the president, John McDonough, the general manager, Stan Bowman, and Joel uh, behind the bench. And there seems to be, you know, a, a little bit of battle fatigue, if you will. They've been together so long. They've done so well. Then they didn't do so well. Mm-hmm. And it seems like something might change. But if they play and win like they are now, nothing's yeah. going to change. Yep. Uh, Jared Brown wants to know, Ray, did you know you're next to unstoppable on NHL 94? It's sick now how often you carve me up. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. But um, uh, I'm glad to see the programmers have <laughs> have. Uh, been able to to gift me with something because all I know is when I play any of the games, like I'm not talking about Fortnite. I don't get those games. Yeah. I can't follow them. But I'm talking about like soccer, or, you know, the EA games of, mm-hmm. of soccer and hockey and that. I suck. I'm terrible. Like my my two kids, my two little guys, yeah. they just pummel. It's just it's, it's over. It's an embarrassment. Yeah. Uh Kestro wants to know what element of Landon's game are you most envious of, or is there an element? Not maybe. Oh, not. his speed. Yeah, yeah, he can really skate. I, uh, um, I've always uh, actually the last time Landon and I raced, he was thirteen, <laughs> and um, so that no, he was twelve actually. That would have been in uh, two thousand and three, and I retired in two thousand and two, and I beat him by a stride. And uh, I said, well, you'll never beat me. And he said, what do you mean? I said, we're never racing again. <laughs> this is it. We're done. Oh, so I one. retired as the champion. As the champion. Uh, Jack Manning says, can, can an agent, uh, we should have asked Alan this, can an agent solicit an offer sheet from another GM, or would the offer have to come without any discussion? Um, I guess more so, like, obviously, behind back channels of, the, of an agent, you know, getting in a GM's ear and uh, helping. No, because an offer sheet, what an offer sheet means is – the player has agreed to those terms. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, if the yeah. other team doesn't match, he's right. going. Right. So yes, that the conversation right. and um, you know, when the, the offer sheet just doesn't pop out of nowhere, that's, that's been negotiated and discussed prior. You're right. Because you have to remember to get an offer sheet, you are a restricted free agent. You can talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. 
it just doesn't mean you can go anywhere. Yeah. So the the during that time, the agent is is just like a UFA. He is shopping around, saying, "Hey, he better be right. right. He better be here. Right. He's not doing his job." Uh, all right. Last question uh, from your boy Baron. They made a documentary about Grant Fuhrer, his life, his career, and the troubles he faced on the way to the Hall of Fame. Have you seen this yet? I, I want to see this. I, I have not, and no. I'm going to. Uh, what other former NHL player deserves to be made into a documentary? Oh, gosh. Uh, Brett, I, Brett Hall? <laughs> Brett Hall, um, Mark Messier, um, through the days when the Oilers were young and wild, and then he went into New York, and they won the first Stanley Cup in 50 years. Do you think you think Mess has got a tale to tell? <laughs> just just a few, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say a few. I would, um, uh, let's see, who else? Um, yeah, you'd want, because you'd want somebody with, with flash and color, yeah. right? And Brett Hall would, Brett Hall the, would be. A the good stories player. about Hall, and I've talked to some people on this podcast as well, and are just incredible. <laughs> the, the things he yeah. said and did and everything. He just. Yeah, I, those, those, you know, all we need is a production company, Steve, and then we can make two documentaries. Yeah, we can do it. Fantastic. Uh, well, everybody, uh, that's it. That's a wrap for another uh, week on the Pulp Hockey Podcast with Ray Ferraro. Thanks to Alan Walsh. Uh, Ray, thank you. What uh, What's your schedule like? Um, I'm actually, I'm off Monday to, I'm home for the weekend. I'm off, or I'm uh, actually, today I'm going to Saskatchewan to give a speech in a small community that oh. is uh, raising money for their uh for their arena and for their ball fields. And, oh, cool. Uh, this is very familiar for me because, uh, you know, I grew up in Trail, B.C., and, you know, we used to have the sportsman's dinner when they'd bring in people to speak, and I used to go with my dad, and I just I love those things. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I'm going to Saskatchewan tonight and uh, be back Sunday morning, and then uh, Monday I go to um, – where am I going? I'm going to Phoenix for Ottawa, and then I got Dallas and Toronto next Thursday. Fantastic. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Appreciate it. Uh, safe travels, Ray, to Saskatchewan and uh, and all of that. We appreciate everybody uh, downloading it and giving us reviews and passing the word on on Twitter. Follow us at Pulp Hockey if you got a question for Ray because don't, don't ask him on his feed because he has too many people. And, uh, yeah, once again, thanks, uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening. Yeah, I love it, guys. Thanks for listening and uh, appreciate the feedback, both good and eh, bad. I don't appreciate it, but I think, we, you know, we – is appreciate the word, Steve. We like it too because we want to want to make the show as good as we can. Just, and uh, thanks very much for listening. I don't want to get the tweets to say the host is terrible. I don't like those tweets. Yeah, no, we don't need those. But yeah, you know. <laughs> maybe I am. Maybe I just am terrible. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, right. Uh, all right, everybody. Thanks, Ray. Cool.